Hello, my name is Paul Kearney. I'm Professor of Politics and Public Policy. And this is a series of short podcasts to accompany my series of blog posts which introduce key public policy concepts and theories in 1,000 words. And almost all of these podcasts will be un- well under 1,000 seconds, so not, not too long. This one is on institutions and new institutionalism. And to accompany this one, it would be useful to read the, the, the big introduction, you know, 12 things to know about public policy. And then compare this post with the one on networks. Now in the post itself, I say that, you know, study of public policy would be incomplete without an understanding of policymaking institutions. Now the problem we'll find when we go into this in, in some depth is it's very difficult to know what an institution is. So this is one of these uh, cases in which political science you know, kind of turns the, our understanding of a term like institution upside down a little bit. So we have to pay attention to what it means exactly. Now, one way to understand that is to say that you know, an institution in the past might have referred to organisations so there's a, there's, a big, there's a big distinction between those two things, but organisations or arenas such as legislatures, courts, executives, and you could say, you know, you can point to them and say, look, there's an institution. Now, an institution, when we talk about new institutionalism, really refers to two related things. The first is we're trying to explain regular patterns of behaviour. And we do that second with reference to the rules or norms or practices or relationships that influence such behaviour, often systematically. Now, there's, there's two ways of, uh, two kinds of rules that are relevant here. The first is a sense of formal rules that are written down and easily understood or relatively easily identified and understood. Uh, often because they're enshrined in a constitution or legislation or regulations. So, for example, the constitutional nature of political systems. So think, think you describe generally systems as confederal or federal, federal or unitary. Some are presidential, some are parliamentary or semi-presidential. Uh, some systems have one parliament, some have two. Some contain constitutional con- uh, courts. Some systems have formal procedures for regular referendums. Okay, so those are well understood, written down formal rules. Now, those those rules may also influence uh, the the so-called operating procedures of political systems. So, their electoral systems, their party systems, the rules in which governments form, the rules of the interaction between the executive and legislature, the role of the civil service. And even, for example, the extent to which uh, group government relationships or networks are institutionalised. So sometimes you have formal, written down, so-called corporatist arrangements. Then you have uh, written down regulatory frameworks. So the rules governing how economic organisations should work, what they're allowed to do and not allowed to do. The rules on you know, how interest groups are able to engage with governments, um, and even the rules governing the provision of public services. Okay, so that's those, those are the kind of straightforward rules that we can tend to point to that, that you can see influence uh, the, the behaviour of actors such as policymakers. But rules can also be informal. 
and very hard to identify. And they're often described in relation to you know, habits, norms, uh, practices, or rules that just develop through the, the, the development of organisations without you know, a written down grand plan. And this is a sort of understanding associated with Eleanor Ostrom and colleagues, that these rules are often so un unwritten and difficult to identify that you can only really understand them if you work within that organisation or if you study it in some depth. So, in practice, we're really looking to identify a mix of formal and informal rules, the, the combination of written regulations and unwritten understandings about how organisations and people are expected to operate. Okay. Now, for me, the interesting thing here is that this helps explain this formal-informal combination helps explain why political systems often operate similarly, despite looking very different on paper. Uh, so, I mean, my favourite example is, you know, people like Leipart make this big distinction between a majoritarian system, like, you know, Westminster system, like the UK, and consensus democracies, like in Switzerland. But for me, the interesting thing about those systems is how similar they tend to operate in practice, because at the heart of each system, is the centrality of policy networks or subsystems or communities. Now, there's a separate post on that, but just think for a second about the, the logic of consultation and communities in both systems. So the size of government is so large that, that elected politicians don't have the ability to manage them or even pay attention to more than a tiny proportion of the responsibilities. They tend to delegate those responsibilities to civil servants. Uh, who in turn delegate to more junior civil servants. Those civil servants tend to you know, be, be non-specialists, they rely on lots of specialist groups, and they form these relationships based on trust with those groups. We, we call those relationships networks, or you know, if they're particularly close communities. Now, that, that same kind of uh, you know, informal relationship in which they develop you know, so-called rules of the game, those exist in uh, lots of systems which look very different on paper. Okay, and you can go into that in some more detail in the networks post, or, or if, you, if you do a search for majoritarian on my WordPress site, you'll see a few discussions on that. Okay, so, so far so good. Now, the problem is when we get a little bit more academic about these concepts, which is necessary because uh, we need to move from this quite intuitive broad discussion about institutions and rules to more concrete studies and detailed approaches which flesh out some of those ideas. Now when you do that you, you face three main problems that I discuss in a little bit of depth in the post. The I mean, first uh, terrible problem is we may not know what an institution is apart from uh, you, know, this, you know this famous phrase I know it when I see it. So if you look at uh, for example the Oxford Handbook of Political Institutions it, it, it devotes a chapter to, what, two dozen institutions, which suggests, you know, that it's, it's almost everything. Um, and we say all those things are institutions, you know, partly because the definition of institution is so vague that it can include all these organisations. And I think still people uh, use institution as a shorthand for organisations, rather than focusing in particular on the rules that people follow within them. Now, the second problem is we may not agree what new institutionalism is. And uh, in fact, Vivian Lowndes has a chapter in which she identifies about a dozen 
variations. So, you know, again, they're, they're brought together with this loose definition, new institutionalism, but you'd really have to look in some depth to see what they have in common. Third problem, we may not agree what institutions do. Now, this is a kind of fundamental uh, problem associated with this phrase, you know, structure and agency. So uh, our question is, you know, do institutions or these rules, do they influence behaviour or do they determine behaviour of individuals? Okay. Um, now, it, this is a very difficult uh, answer to pin down. Uh, now, so on the one hand, you can treat an institution effectively as a structure, uh, that's you know that's relatively hard to shift. The rules endure in the same basic form regardless of the individuals involved, and those individuals have to follow those rules. You might say these rules determine behaviour to some extent. On the other hand, you might say, well, these rules only endure when they are passed on between people as part of you know uh, training or socialisation. So in that sense, you might say a rule becomes just like a language; it only survives. If there are enough individuals committed to its survival, you know, through training and socialisation and passing on that language. So in that sense, it's not inevitable that institutions endure over time and and you know resemble structures. And we might even question the extent to which they represent shared meanings and practices, rather than each individual interpreting what they think an institution or rule is in practice. So they might be reproduced in very different ways by individuals who understand those rules differently, act differently to challenge or reinforce them. Okay, so if all those possibilities exist, this makes the identification of institutions very tricky indeed. Okay, especially if rules exist, you know, largely in the mind of actors and they're reproduced in, you know, unwritten or implicit ways, you know, um, implicit rules sometimes contradict the rules that are written down. You know, at the very least, it's very hard to know uh, you know, how you know, empirically to work out the role and influence of institutions. Now, what you'll find when you delve into the, the literature on this is that, that those problems are reflected in lots of different variations, ways of studying institutionalism. Now, in the book, I, I go into most of them, four of them. The, the first is historical institutionalism which talks about things like path dependence, so the idea that, that decisions made in the past uh, contributed to the, you know, the way in which uh, you know, actors operate now. Uh, now, path dependence kind of suggests that you know, once you make some decisions, and it, it commits you to particular uh, resources and rules, it becomes increasingly uh, costly to choose a different path. And in that literature, they talk a lot about you know this idea of a, a critical juncture in which uh, you know institutions are very well established, and it really takes something significant to shift them. Then you have rational choice institutionalism, uh, which which would be uh, useful to to compare with the, the the separate post on rational choice. In this case, um, we're trying to explain you know if if you assume that you know uh, in a narrow sense that uh, individuals act rationally. You're trying to work out what is the effect of the sort of institutional context on people's behaviour. And, you know, in a practical sense, what shift in rules can help change people's behaviour. Then you have normative or sociological institutionalism. 
in which there's a stronger focus on norms and values and organisations which influence behaviour. So that's associated with people like March and Olson, who have these, uh, you know, this famous phrase, rules of appropriateness, which are transmitted through socialisation and followed because they're seen as natural, rightful, expected and legitimate. Now they're much closer to that idea of a kind of almost a structural sense of following rules uh, you know, because they, they influence behaviour very strongly. And then you have a fourth, which is constructivist institutionalism, which talks about institutions uh, in terms of shared beliefs, which give people a common aim and reason to believe that they have a shared interest. Now, the focus in there is about, uh, you know, if you look at historical institutionalism, we talk about punctuated equilibrium. It really takes something to shift those institutions. With constructivism, it's much more about if, you know, if, if ideas, if institutions are ideas in, in people's heads, then you can uh, challenge uh, those ideas uh, in, a, you know, in a much more continuous fashion than this sense of a, a necessary punctuation. And in the second edition, I'll give much more prominence to uh, feminist institu institutionalism you know, to reflect its uh, established contribution in the field. Now, one task... Uh, well, let's say, where do we go from here? Right? So one, one way to think about these things is to consider if all those institutionalisms are you know, have insights that are complementary or contradictory. In that sense, it's worth reading up on that, the, the separate post and having this article called Standing on the Shoulders of Giants, which gets into that, you know, that sense. Can you, can you combine all the insights of these institutionalisms? Or are they actually telling you uh, contradictory stories? And, it, and it, I would look at this literature in particular. There does seem to be a, a relatively high level of debate about what an institution is. Um, the second thing to do, much more straightforward, is to consider institutions as part of a wider explanation for policy processes. So in that sense, I would say, look at the, the post and listen to the, you know, it's an hour long, I'll give you this, an hour long post on, you know, 12 things to know about public policy, because that includes a discussion about you know, the five main kind of factors that you would try to include in a policy theory. And an institution is one of those things. Okay, thank you.